You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series. Joining us to talk about her campaign for governor in the Democratic primary on September 6th before November's general election is Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz represents the 2nd Suffolk District. She's also the first Latina and Asian American elected to the Massachusetts State Senate. In her 13 years on Beacon Hill, she's championed landmark education funding reforms to provide $1.5 billion in new aid to K-12 through school districts across the state, negotiated a nation-leading police reform law, won increased assistance for small and local entrepreneurs, advanced environmental justice reforms, curtailed the misuse of special education dollars, helped pass reforms to the state's Cori system, expanded voting rights, and defended millions of dollars in funding for youth development. So, Senator, why do you want to run for governor now? Well, Travis, you know, I've been serving on Beacon Hill for 13 years uh, in the in the Senate. And I just I see so clearly, you know, when I look around, probably, you know, the same thing you see and probably a lot of your listeners see is that it is just getting harder and harder to live here in Massachusetts. Right. We've got um, housing costs that are just going through the roof. We've got uh, some of the worst traffic congestion in the nation. Um, But on the other hand, limitations right to our uh, transportation options. Um, we've got uh, some of the fastest growing student debt load. Uh, and then if you look at the early education end of the spectrum, you know, problems abound there too, right? You, you, half of our population in Massachusetts lives in childcare deserts where even if you have the $20,000 a year it costs to buy a seat, you, you might not be able to find one. Um, so we just have, you know, these problems that are mounting that working families are getting it from on every side and they're just carrying a tremendous load. And, and, I just see the pattern over and over again, the way that we on Beacon Hill tell working families to wait uh, for real solutions to those problems. Uh, you know, wait another year, wait another legislative cycle. And uh, I think a lot of folks are fed up with waiting and I'm fed up with waiting. So that's why I'm in this race. And I know we talked about your background in the intro. Can you tell us one or two things from your background that you think really prepare you to assume the role of governor this fall? Well, so there's a few different, uh, you know, hats uh, that I bring to this work. Um, And then I can talk a little bit about, you know, the particular experiences that I think prepare me best for governor. But, you know, being prepared for public service period, right, I think is a function of a few different things. I come to this work as a as a parent, a mom of a six year old and an eight year old. Um, I'm a former public school teacher. Um, So that's a, you know, both a value set and an experience set that deeply informs my work. Um, and folks may not know, but I'm the first Latina and the first uh, Asian American uh, to serve in the state Senate. Um, and those are all lenses that I bring uh, to this work. Certainly, uh, equity in all things that we do is a, something that has uh, characterized my work over the past 13 years, and it will continue to inform my work as governor. In terms of experience, right, I've been through now uh, 13 budget cycles, right, of uh, stewarding our now $48 billion state budget um, I just, as a legislator. That's certainly something that's going to be, you know, a very important piece of experience for the next governor. But I think probably most important of all, um, both in my experience, but also as I talk to voters across the state and hear from them what they are really hungry for in our next governor, is uh, someone who is going to be willing to take on our our toughest fights, right? And not just sort of take take on the ones that are politically convenient um, or easy, 
but really come off of the sidelines and tackle those tough ones because it's those tough ones that have been that have been dogging us for so long. And that's a record that I have of you know a 13 year long record of being willing to uh, you know challenge uh, leaders both in the opposing party and in my own party when necessary in order and then building large winning coalitions in order to put change in the in the in, in the end zone so that we're actually accomplishing changes in real people's lives. I think the, the primary you know example of that is the Student Opportunity Act, which many folks in North Central uh, Massachusetts will know from what you know where are they're already starting to see millions more dollars come into their school coffers this year and more in the future because of the passage of that law. When you look at the Student Opportunity Act, I know there's a lot of talk about education um, in terms of helping to combat this tight labor force that we're seeing as the Great Resignation continues. Um, in addition to investing and continuing to invest in the Student Opportunity Act, if you're elected, what else do you think we need to do to really um, solve this tight labor market issue that a lot of our small business employers here in North Central Mass are having? Yeah, huge issue. And this was an issue before the pandemic. Um, but of course, the pandemic has just, you know, spiked it even more. And I will tell you, you know, in those 13 years in office, this is the this is the pain point that I hear most consistently from employers um, across our state is um, that difficulty of finding the workforce that they need. And it's crazy, right? Because we have so much economic potential that we could unleash um, if we could solve this problem. And we can't, right? We have the people. We just need to put them together, right, with the opportunities and the education. So. Um, I will continue to, uh, first of all, you know, implement with fidelity the promises of the Student Opportunity Act. And I wish I could say, Travis, after, you know, five years of, uh, you know, busting my butt to get that law passed, I wish I could say that now that it's in law, you know, we can kind of put it on autopilot and it will just happen. Um, but that's not the case. We've seen over the past few years that um, even three months after uh, Governor Baker signed the bill into law, he was underfunding it in his first budget proposal. Um, so we have to continue to watchdog that. And I've made a, 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 a ironclad pledge uh, that I will veto any budget as governor that does not uh, implement with with fidelity the commitments of the Student Opportunity Act to our local school districts. So that's one. But that is not going to, you know, that's not enough for us to do. We also have to attend to the early ed end of the spectrum and the higher ed end of the spectrum if we really want to get the workforce that our employers in Massachusetts need. Um, I mentioned earlier that 50% of Bay Staters live in childcare deserts, right? That's totally unacceptable. And we've seen that other states are, are, you know, with far fewer resources than Massachusetts has, are lapping us when it comes to standing up universal early education and care. Um, so this will be a major priority for my administration, um, is getting that universal child care system in place. Um, and then on the higher ed end of the spectrum, uh, putting in place debt-free access to public higher education in Massachusetts uh, for every Massachusetts child. Uh, and this is a, this is something I have to give propers uh, to Rep Higgins uh, for leading the way on. And I'm you know very proud to co-sponsor her legislation and get on that bandwagon and push, right? Um, because we will not get there uh, economically in this state if higher education becomes increasingly the province of the wealthy and the privileged. Early in the podcast, you talked about transportation. Uh, North Central Massachusetts residents are quite familiar with congestion on Route 2, but in addition to you know, congestion uh, just being a pain for those trying to get back and forth across the Commonwealth, transportation is also a huge barrier for employment for many mm -hmm. Bay Staters, uh, many mm -hmm. North Central Massachusetts residents. If you're elected, um, how do you plan to invest and, and, and work on this transportation barrier issue? Yeah, it's a, I mean, look, infrastructure, 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 Travis. And when I say that, I mean both 
the physical human infrastructure, the physical infrastructure rather of, you know, roads, bridges, um, we could get into uh, clean energy, you know, uh, infrastructure as well, um, but also the human infrastructure, right, of our education system. But on the physical side, um, we've got three decades worth of underinvestment uh, and, you know, crumbling of the crumbling infrastructure to show for it. So I'll be honest with folks, this is not a problem that I'm going to snap my fingers and we're going to solve it overnight. Uh, but we have to start making these, you know, real investments to clear the backlog of, uh, you know, deferred maintenance um, and in our transportation system and make aggressive investments to build the system, you know, not just sort of sustain the system we have, but build a truly 21st century transit system across our state. That includes East-West Rail. Um, it includes um, expanding and electrifying our public transit systems, our uh, turning our uh, commuter rail system into a, you know, a, a legit uh, regional rail system that runs frequent service on, you know, 15 to 30 minute intervals all day so that it becomes a really viable um, commuting option uh, for families who live outside of Metro Boston. When you mentioned transportation, another word that goes hand in hand often is climate change. The state has goals to reduce emissions to zero carbon emissions by 2050. Do you think this is the right approach? And also, how can we approach climate change legislation in a way that's not a barrier for business and a way that's not cost prohibitive for our yeah. small businesses here in North Central Massachusetts? Yeah. So, Travis, I, I was uh, proud to vote for the the next gen climate roadmap bill, which set that target of 2050 for making the full transition to um, carbon free energy in Massachusetts. But I so I think it was a, a very important step in the right direction. But when you ask me if I think it's the right approach, I will say I think that we need to go harder and faster, and we need, we can hit the, that transition goal before 2050. And I've laid out a, a full scale Green New Deal plan. Uh, for Massachusetts on my website. Folks can find it there at soniachangdiaz.com. Um, and it has a, a few different benchmarks in it. One is uh, transitioning our youth, meeting all of our electricity use needs in Massachusetts with green energy by 2030, right? So that's one benchmark I think we can go faster towards. Um, it also includes the things that I mentioned before about expanding and electrifying our transportation systems, which is another huge piece of the puzzle if we're going to if we're going to actually hit uh, carbon free. Um, and it also includes creating tens of thousands of new jobs for Massachusetts, right? Because we need to make this transition in order to avert climate disaster, right? Extreme weather events, which, you know, you mentioned the cost, right? For businesses, Travis. And the truth is, you know, these, these, the cost of climate change are not sort of like down the road. <laughs> you know, they're already coming right at us and they're already here. We're already experiencing record heat, record rainfall in our Commonwealth. And so, you know, whether it's business owners in their businesses, right, or business owners in their homes and the rest of their lives are experiencing um, the load of extreme weather events and we're paying for it already. And we need to uh, sort of socialize these costs so that we are together, uh, you know, paying for the transition to a green energy economy. But the good news here, Travis, is that as we make those moves in order to avert disaster, we also can grab huge economic opportunities, right? For Central Mass as well as for uh, on the coast. Uh, we, you know, when I say tens of thousands of new jobs, I'm talking about good paying family sustaining wage jobs um, in the green energy economy, manufacturing, um, legal, planning, right? There's just a whole host of um, 
of functions that the conversion to green energy is going to spin off for our economy. We need to make sure that we've got the institution, the educational institutions in place um, to train up the workforce for those jobs. Um, and we need to make sure we've got the transportation networks in place so that those jobs can be located, um, you know, distributed across the state. And I said, not just clustered, you know, on the eastern uh, portion of the state. With the election this fall, the pandemic is still ongoing. How do you feel about the way the current administration has handled the pandemic? And if elected, what would you do differently? Yeah. So, you know, Travis, I think that um, a huge salute is owed to the people of Massachusetts here uh, in the way that we collectively have handled the pandemic thus far. Um, we do, uh, you know, we are a healthcare and an educational capital of, uh, of the world in many cases. And so, of course, you know, we should have higher vaccination rates in Massachusetts than elsewhere in the nation. Um, and, you know, there are some things uh, that I agree with and that I would praise the Baker administration during this pandemic, but there are a lot of things that I have disagreed with and I, and I won't be, uh, you know, coy about that. We could have done a better job at a lot of stages in the pandemic of uh, sort of looking down the road and around the corner, right? You can't, no, no executive can anticipate, you know, every twist and turn in a public health emergency like this, but there are a lot of things that were predictable and in fact predicted, right, that we were behind the curve on uh, in Massachusetts, just looking a few months ago, right, at the Omicron surge. Um, which we saw coming, right? We know anyone could have told you that there was going to be a spike in transmissions going, you know, in the holiday uh, season starting around um, Thanksgiving, you know, and extending through New Year's, right? Anyone could have said, look, there's going to be a spike in transmissions. We're going to need more testing capacity. We're going to need more PPE. We should have had those systems, you know, better set up in advance so that it wouldn't cause such a, a wave, you know, of negative impacts through our school system and our businesses. And where your business members are concerned, Travis, like, you know, one of the things that's really frustrated me is that I think that so many, you know, whether it's local, you know, government entities or businesses and, or individual families have been left to figure it all out themselves, right, and just fend for themselves. And so you have business owners, for example, that just had to figure out each one on their own what are we going to do about, you know, vaccination uh, verification? Where other states around the nation, you know, stood up uh, vax credentialing systems that were available for any business to use, right? And they didn't have to invent that infrastructure uh, and those systems each on their own in a thousand different ways. We could have done that here in Massachusetts. One thing a lot of our employees have had to figure out is how to deal with the increases to the unemployment insurance trust fund. Um, as you know, this is something that employers were dealing with before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really exacerbated problems with the uninsurance employment trust fund. If you are elected in November, what would you propose we do for a long-term solution other than putting ARPA money towards it? Mm -hmm. Well, Travis, if I have my druthers, if I have my way, and this is something that I uh, started calling for early in the pandemic, we would have actually put in place a, um, a, a pandemic, what I call a pandemic profits tax, um, which I know, you know, business owners don't often like to hear the, the T word, right? But there are, you know, large businesses, mostly, you know, multi-state, multinational corporations that have made just insane amounts of money. Uh, huge windfall profits driven by the pandemic. Uh, and those are profits that we we should be able to say, look, if you were one of these companies that was in the fortunate position of, you know, if you were, uh, you know, Zoom or, you know, a toilet paper manufacturer or, say, you know, so, somebody who just by the nature of this pandemic um, ended up making these huge windfall profits, 
those are corporations that we ought to be asking a little more from um, in order to help us collectively um, deal with the negative, uh, you know, and, and the spike in need uh, from the pandemic. I don't think that's crazy to ask. And I think that a lot of our small local entrepreneurs and business owners um, can see the sense in that. And they've really gotten the short end of the stick during the pandemic. And we need to equalize those, the scales a little bit there. One of the other things I want to talk about when it comes to the pandemic is tourism. Tourism is the third largest industry in the Commonwealth. Here in North Central Massachusetts, it was one of the hardest hit industries. Um, and despite it being one of the largest industries in the Commonwealth, Massachusetts often falls at the bottom of the pack when it comes to investment in tourism. If you are elected, how do you recommend that the state better capitalize on tourism to bring more of those dollars to the state, especially when you have so many other states around Massachusetts competing for those same visitor dollars? So one thing, Travis, I want to just say, because I think I didn't totally connect the dots on your last question there, is that, you know, if we can tap into the one fall profits that we've seen some corporations make during the pandemic, that's a potential revenue source um, mm -hmm. for paying down the unemployment trust fund um, uh, liability. So I, that, I just wanted to make that clear. Um, so with respect to tourism, this was actually uh, my very first uh, assignment as a state senator uh, was to chair, uh, my first term was to chair the Committee on Tourism, Arts and Cultural Development. So I came to learn very quickly, very early, what a huge um, industry tourism is for Massachusetts, just as you've said. Uh, so one, you know, half, knowing is half the battle, right? Is just acknowledging that, right? What an essential piece of our um, overall economy tourism is. Um, I think that some of the things we've talked about already, like making investments into our um, transit systems and our transportation infrastructure is going to help uh, with our tourism sector, our tourism economy, right? Making it easier for tourists to get um, to all of the wonderful attractions across our state. And again, not just stay sort of clustered, you know, maybe in, in Boston and maybe the Berkshires, uh, but see the beautiful middle in between. Uh, and then uh, one of the things we also put in place um, that I was proud to help sort of midwife um, as, uh, as chair of the tourism uh, arts committee was um, the establishment of a legal framework for creating cultural districts uh, in Massachusetts so that, you know, to help uh, with the marketing, right, of uh, the cultural assets that we have across Massachusetts. Um, and that was based um, directly on uh, feedback and ideas that we got from the field. So that would be my approach as governor is similarly, you know, really being um, in communication with and communion with um, folks on the front lines, right, in our tourism industry um, and hearing from them what are the pieces, what are the sort of, uh, you know, public sector infrastructure pieces that we can be partners with in order to help those tourism dollars flow. You mentioned the word equity. Um, and we look at the pandemic Obviously, a lot of underserved populations have been disproportionately affected by this, but also here in North Central Massachusetts, there's often that view that anything outside the 128, 495 belt often gets left behind. So when we look at moving forward, how can we ensure an equitable recovery, but also that North Central Massachusetts gets to reach its full economic development potential? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And look, on this, I think we have to really, we have to be disciplined about looking at the numbers, right? And not um, sort of, defining equity by habit, right, or by um, uh, cliche, right, but really looking at the numbers. And um, that is why when I was, uh, you know, first architecting the, the Promise Act, right, which went on to become the Student Opportunity Act, um, it's really, you know, it's not based on, uh, you know, just, you know, sort of this region or that region. It's really based on uh, where do we have students of the highest need? And that was the difference um, 
it, you know, we almost got we almost got a bill that was about a third of the size uh, in terms of the financial commitment. And the, um, the, the two thirds that we, that we had to fight for, right, that we almost didn't get were the pieces of the bill that were really targeted um, to low income communities, right? Where, you know, communities that have a higher um, density of low income families and low income students that are doing, you know, heroic work in schools to close our opportunity divide, to close our achievement gaps in Massachusetts. I think of places like Fitchburg, like Lemonster, um, like Worcester. Um, and making sure that they did not get neglected in the formula, right? Even though I represent Boston, uh, this was not a fight just for the Boston public schools for me, right? Or even the Lynn public schools where I used to teach. It was really informed by the experience that I had as education committee chair for eight years and traveling all across the state, being in conversation with school leaders and business leaders in every region and saying, look, these are deep frustrations that districts across our state have in common and we need to make sure that we are writing a formula that touches them all. Now, if you had only 60 seconds to uh, convince me or one of the listeners why we should vote for you in the September 6th Democratic primary and then in November, what would you say? And I'm going to put you on the clock starting right now. <laughs> okay. I would say, Travis, our, our next governor um, needs to have the courage of her convictions. And uh, I did not get into this race uh, because... Uh, I thought it was going to be easy, uh, and uh, I didn't get into it because I saw a career opportunity. I got into it because I have stood on the front lines with families across the state uh, for my whole life. I know the urgency of this moment that we're living in, and indeed, Travis, the 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 you know work that I have taken on over the past 13 years never was it because it was an easy fight. It was because it was an important fight, something that working families in our Commonwealth desperately needed and have been told to wait too long on. And that will be my North Star um, as governor is even when it's hard, right? And especially when it's hard, because that's when families who've been suffering under the status quo really need you, right? Especially when it's hard. That is when folks will be able to count on me coming off of the sidelines and doing what's necessary in terms of um, speaking truth, coalition building in order to put the win in the end zone for, for change that families can actually take to the bank. And for listeners who want more information about your campaign, where can they go? SoniaChangDiaz.com. Thank you for asking. It's Sonia with an I, uh, ChangDiaz.com. This has been another election series episode of the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. I'd like to thank State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz for talking to us about her platform as a Democratic candidate in the race for governor. The primary is scheduled for September 6th. The general election is slated for November 8th. Senator, thank you so much for being a part of the program. Charles, thanks for having me. I hope you'll have me back. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.